Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Welcome everyone. I'm Susan Watkins. I'm Professor of Women's Writing and Director of the Centre for Culture and the Arts in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. Thanks for joining us for our special podcast in honour of LGBTQ Plus History Month. The podcast is on what we can learn from Virginia Woolf's novel, Orlando, which was first published in 1928. And today I'm in conversation with my colleague from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett, Professor Ruth Robbins. Ruth is an expert in late Victorian and early 20th century literature with a particular interest in decadence, fin de siècle and modernist writing, as well as medical advice to women in the 19th century. She's also published on Oscar Wilde, another icon for LGBTQ plus history, and currently she's writing A Literary Life of Virginia Woolf. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you. That's a very nice introduction. You're very welcome. So, Ruth, why should we be interested in Virginia Woolf anymore, given that she was a you know, fairly privileged upper middle class woman living almost 100 years ago. You know, why should we turn to her for words of wisdom now about gender and sexuality, do you think? Wolf has a lot to offer, I think, um, in terms of gender, particularly gender first. Um, She felt herself to be an outsider. So she was born in 1882 to this very privileged uh, family really Um, but one of the things that she resented all the way through her childhood and young womanhood was the amount of money and effort that was spent on her brother's education compared to hers so they were sent to private schools they went to Cambridge this was all done on family money Um, and she was kept at home educated by her parents and then got little bits of education outside the home but really not very much really resented the fact that because she was a woman and it's the woman the gender bit of that that matters first uh, that she wasn't permitted to to do more things and in terms of sexuality uh, she raises very interesting questions for us about what is the what is the place of sex um, in our lives? Um, so she wasn't strictly speaking um, a very sexualized person, really. Uh, she married. Um, that the relationship between her and her husband was clearly extremely close. They were emotionally very attached, but they don't seem to have had much sex. <laughs> Um, And how would you know that, Ruth? uh, Because the letters tell us that. Mm. Um, So there's a letter, for example, from Vita Sackville-West to her husband, uh, Harold Dickelson, um, who says, you know, I've had a chat with Virginia about her sex life. They they did it a bit in the the teens of the 20th century, but it wasn't a success. (laughs) So they didn't do very much together. And they made the decision, though I think it was Leonard's decision rather than Virginia's, uh, not to have children because Virginia Woolf's mental state was quite precarious. She'd been quite seriously mentally ill on a number of occasions. And there was an assumption at this point 
um, that uh, childbirth was very dangerous for women who were already in a precarious state. So her, um, her sex life is quite limited. Um, so what she has to say about sex itself is um, almost non-existent, to be honest. Um, but that then leads her to say some quite interesting things about why it shouldn't be the only defining characteristic of a person's life. Um, that who you choose to love is not uh, the kind of total explanation of what kind of person you might be. Um, and that sense that love can go in lots of different directions, that it may or may not have physical expression, um, those are actually quite modern ideas and they go against the grain of uh, much 20th century thought in the wake of Sigmund Freud's thought, for instance. OK, so so if I could just pick you up on a couple of things there. So going back to what you said about gender, so she, she's not an educated woman, partly because the institutions just weren't open to women at that time, I guess. Mm. So presumably the public schools and the universities, there, there were no colleges for women, etc., that she could attend. Well, by the time she was a, a teenager, actually, there were. She right. could go to school. It was a family choice. Her parents were really Victorian. And I think mm. that's what it comes down to. Her mother in particular uh, felt that it was the role of woman to be domesticated. Um, and when I say she wasn't educated, she wasn't formally educated. And mm. um, she educated herself very thoroughly, actually. Uh, there are um, notes in her diaries and lots of descriptions in letters to friends of how she would pop into her father's library and say, can I have another book, please, Daddy? Um, and he would, you know, she was galloping her way through a very extensive library um, in Leslie Stevens' house. Um, so she read, but she felt that she wasn't, um, that she wasn't systematic, I suppose, that her education had been a bit hit and miss. Mm. Um, she could have gone to one of the Cambridge Colleges for Women or one of the Oxford Colleges for Women. Those existed, but the money wasn't forthcoming. So right. the family didn't support her. Mm, OK. And in relation to sexuality, I mean, in some ways you seem to be saying that she she wasn't that sexual a person. Mm. But maybe when we get on to her relationship with Vita, things change a bit there, but but perhaps we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves and, and we should pause and say a little bit, if, if you wouldn't mind, Ruth, about the novel Orlando and its plot, because that will kind of lead us into some of what we might get to about her um, relationship with another woman. So Orlando is a very different book from most of the texts that um, Wolfe is famous for. Uh, she's often got this reputation for being quite serious and a little bit scary. There is a play called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And there's a reason for that title, um, that she's intellectually quite hard going is the, uh, is the general uh, view of the public, I suppose. Orlando is really different. It's a comic novel, amongst other things. It's very funny in parts. But it's also, I suppose, the way to describe it generically is as a historical fantasy. It tells the story of a young man called Orlando from roughly the 1580s. This young man 
lives for 500 years and roughly 200 years through that living, so sometime round about the turn of the 17th to the 18th century, um, Orlando becomes a woman, mm. um, which is quite a big uh, shift. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and it, con it considers the, the implications of what happens to someone when their sex changes. So there are sort of legal boundaries, for example. One of the things that you can't do very easily as a woman in 18th century and 19th century England is inherit property. Mm -hmm. So part of the plot of Orlando is about her um, ongoing attempts to be allowed to inherit her family stately, stately home. Um, but it's also a novel about uh, who you love. So Orlando, depending on which sex she is at a given moment, um, loves the opposite sex. So if she's a man, she loves women. If she's a woman, she loves men. Um, so also heterosexual so far. But the men and women she loves are actually men and women who are quite androgynous. They're not necessarily uh, hyper feminine or hyper virile. And their attraction is partly about that androgyny. Mm, and what say a bit more about that term androgyny because it's something that's been associated with her work isn't it and it's maybe not a term we use so much now yeah well it, it comes from the greek andro for man gyne for woman um, and it suggests the linking together of the two sexes um, that one might inhabit both kinds of body and mind at once in her book um, a room of one's own she says that the great writers are androgynous, so they are man-womanly and woman-manly, that's the phrase she uses. It's really to do with this idea that um, you can sympathise and empathise with whoever you are not, whichever the other side might be. Um, and it was a very common idea, actually, in modernist writing. Um, one of the kind of figures of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, for instance, um, is Tiresias, um, a man who is turned into a woman as a punishment, actually. It tells mm. you quite a lot about the status of women in ancient Greece, I think, um, who's turned into a woman for, as a punishment for not thinking about the position of woman in sexual relations between the two sexes. So this, uh, this idea that there is some purpose, some reason for knowing what the other may think um, we'll make you a great writer, says Wolf. I think she's also um, implying that it makes you a, a good person to have mm, that. Mm. And I guess that that modernist sense of um, uh, gender identity in terms of androgyny is going quite against that Victorian notion of, you know, women and men as having very separate spheres, being incredibly different from each other. So we can kind of see see it as part of that modernist experimentation maybe. Yeah absolutely I mean I think the reaction that Wolf has is to this very severe gender demarcation. Right. Man for the field, woman for the hearth says Tennyson. Um, so you stay domestic if you're female, you live a public life if you're male um, and the resentment that she feels about that, the anger she feels, the wasted opportunities, I guess, um, that uh, the wasted lives that many women led um, mm. as a result of that separate sphere's ideology. 
Okay, um, and obviously there is um, quite a specific model for Orlando, isn't there, and a specific background. Why did she write it? Yeah, it's a lovely love story, to be honest. Um, Orlando is an extended love letter to Vita Sackville West. Um, she'd met, Virginia Woolf had met Vita uh, sometime in the early 1920s and they'd corresponded a bit and then they get closer and closer. And eventually they do have some kind of possibly quite limited sexual relationship. Um, Vita Sackville West uh, may have been married, well, she mm. was married, she certainly was married, uh, but she was married to a man whose own um, sexual life was elsewhere, and um, he was homosexual. And although they were clearly very close and had two children, um, they kind of went their own way. Vita had a number of lesbian relationships across the course of her married life, um, one of which led to a fairly profound scandal when she eloped with another woman in the mm. early 1920s. Um, but she seems to have really attracted Virginia Woolf. Um, she was physically very attractive to Woolf, which was unusual. Woolf didn't usually make those kinds of comments about either men or women, really. Um, she seems to have been everything that Woolf wasn't. Um, she's aristocratic, she's confident, she's confident as a writer, even though her writings perhaps haven't survived so well. Um, she's confident um, socially because she's, uh, you know, comes from this long line of aristocrats. And in fact, it's Vita's story that is in part being told in Orlando's story. Vita Sackville West, as the daughter um, of a peer, wasn't able to inherit either the house or the title. Uh, where, you know, so she'd been brought up at um, a very wonderful stately home called Knoll and was not allowed to inherit it because she was female. Mm. So in a way it's sort of offering a, um, a compensation to Vita for some of the losses that she's experienced from being female. So in the novel from memory I think she does have um, Orlando once she's a woman inherit the house doesn't she? Yeah, sort it's, of it's complicated isn't it? It's sort of uh, projected as something that will probably happen yeah mm. as opposed to something that actually is happening the novel more or less finishes in 1925 which in 1928 is present day um, and the, the novel is very uh, optimistic for the future it kind of suggests that the future will belong to women um, which um Perhaps Wolf was wrong or over optimistic in that history rather suggests that that didn't happen in the 20th mm. century. Um, but it's a very um, upbeat ending, um, showing new technologies and new ways of living in the world. Uh, so there's a sort of excitement of, of possibility written at the end of the novel. Yeah, so um, a love letter where she, to some extent, tries to restore something that Vita had actually lost in real life, as it were. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. 
Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. Everything you said at the beginning about Wolf's sexuality, the, the discovery of that Orlando's based on a relationship that she had with another woman kind of makes me want to reconsider some of what you said at the beginning. I mean, how does it compare with other early lesbian re- writings, do you think? Yeah. Um, I suppose Can we that's... use the term lesbian even for somebody like Wolf and this novel? Well, I'm unwilling not to use it mm. um, because I think that sometimes, because the, the evidence for lesbian histories are so buried and so difficult to find, um, if we insist that uh, they must have been, I don't know, at it like rabbits all the time in order to be defined as lesbians, I'm afraid that there will be no lesbian history and that's not OK. Mm. Uh, sometimes we have to allow for the possibility. Um, and sex may, sex in bed may be one thing. There are other ways of expressing sexual desire. So it may not always have to be about being um well um vita calls uh, calls uh, virginia's attitude suppressed randiness um, <laughs> her letters uh it doesn't always have to be quite like that i think um from my point of view the, the radicalness of orlando is that it gets away with it right the point is that um, this was an open secret. It's not. It's not not obvious that this book is not for Vita Sackville West. It's dedicated to her. Portraits from the family home at Knoll and a photograph or two of Vita herself are shown through the, the, the course of the novel as images of Orlando at different points in history. Um, so anybody who knew the history of Knoll would know that Vita was meant. And as I say, there's already been a not quite public scandal about Vita's own sex life. So um, to that extent, I think people knew. Mm. But it comes out, as it were, (laughs) at almost Mm. exactly the same moment as Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness. Right. Um, I think Hall's, that novel is a very different proposition. Absolutely. First of all, it's not funny. Um, it, it's a tragic story, The Well of Loneliness. Um, it's about a woman who lives her life more or less as a man um, and who ends up having to sacrifice her desire because of social lack of um, acceptance. Yeah. It's also My memory of that novel is that she's desperate throughout to, to, you know, to not have this kind of tragic affliction of being attracted to a other women and the whole novel is framed in those terms yes it's also very much based on a kind of butch femme notion of lesbian existence so Mm -hmm. the central relationship between Stephen Gordon and the girl he loves or she loves 
um, is uh, is very much a sort of heterosexual relationship, only they're both women. It's it, mm. it's very much um, based on that kind of binary opposition. Just to explain to listeners that in Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, the heroine is is a woman, but adopts the name Stephen um, because she kind of wishes she'd been born a boy, doesn't doesn't she, from memory? Yeah, and, and wears male clothing, lives yeah. the life mm. of a country gentleman, so does all of the things that a man might do. It's an act of impersonation in all kinds of ways. Um, so it's a very sad book, um, partly because it can't imagine... Um, a happy ending for a lesbian relationship, partly because it can't imagine a womanly version of what lesbian might mean. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really is caught up in that uh, very heterosexual notion of what sex must be about. Now, what happened with The World of Loneliness was that almost immediately on publication, it was banned for obscenity uh, by the Home Secretary and it was prosecuted. So it's a novel that, um, because it wears its heart quite openly on its sleeve, um, immediately provoked a reaction. Uh, and it's a very hostile, very negative reaction. Uh, Wolf was one of many writers who tried to defend the book in public and uh, she offered to go to court to defend it as well, though that never actually happened. Um, Wolf's own procedure is very different yeah so you can't you can't see the um you can't see the lesbian story quite so clearly it's a much more coded uh, experience of uh, of desire i suppose um, and consequently it doesn't get prosecuted I and mean, it's there's the open secret that it's a love letter for vita sackville west it's very obvious what its mode of address is and yet it's not a problem. It's not regarded as a problematic text at all. And in fact, uh, without exception, it was Wolfe's most popular novel in her lifetime. It sold thousands. She says in letters after its publication that it pays for um, lots of luxuries in her house um, in, in Sussex. You know, she, she puts in bathrooms and, and does up her house on the back of Orlando. Um, so, you know, it, it had popularity in a way that I don't think it could have done if it had been more overt. Mm, mm. Um, and we talked in other circumstances about this, Susan, but I guess that one of the reasons that it works is that it's a fantasy text. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose the question is, why choose that mode? Because it's not quite the same as some of her other modernist work, as you've said, you know, so... Um, things like To the Lighthouse and Mrs Dalloway use the stream of consciousness mode and but they don't kind of experiment in quite the same way as Orlando. So I wonder if it allows her to imagine alternative realities in a way that her other writing doesn't. Yeah I think that's exactly it. Realism is um, a mode that is very good for diagnosis. So you can look at a world's the world's problem whatever that problem is, from climate change to lesbian existence, you know, it could be any problem. You can say, here is the problem. But what you can't do is imagine the future if you stick with the realist mode. You can't imagine an alternative way of sorting out that problem. So fantasy has hugely beneficial um, uh, 
you know, it's very beneficial to to think in different terms rather than just to accept uh, the world as it is. As you obviously know from your own work on apocalyptic fictions and the way that women writers particularly imagine futures. Mm, yeah, and I think that probably something like Orlando has its legacy within fantasy writing, like, for example, Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, um, which imagines a world in which um, people only assume a sex at the point where they're about to reproduce. Most of the time, they're, they're not sexed at all. And so, yeah, it kind of offers possibilities, I guess, to readers and, and then subsequently other writers um, that perhaps her other modernist work didn't, in, maybe in quite the same way. Yeah. Um, so if we've, if we've talked about androgyny as her, I suppose, ideal in terms of gender, and we've said that in Orlando, um, the main character loves both men and women, as well as changing her sex halfway through the novel. What can we kind of extrapolate from that in terms of what messages Wolf is leaving for us about gender identities and sexual preferences? And what can we learn from the novel? Well, just at the moment, there's a lot of debate. In this moment, there's a lot of debate about where gender and sexuality are defined and how they're defined. The, the sense that you have to, even now, you have to be somehow one thing or another. Yeah, like it's a kind of essentialist idea, isn't it? That, that yeah, yeah, that this is a fundamental part of everyone's identity from the inside out, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And it's written into language too. So um, there've been multiple debates, uh, for example, um, in the trans community around how people use pronouns, whether you right. use she, they, what, what are your preferred pronouns, has become a real question. And sometimes it's very difficult not to make mistakes too. Mm, mm. Um, the fixity of gender in our minds is partly about the fixity of gender in our language. That's one of the, the problems uh, that we um, have to confront, really. So I think what she's got to teach us is something about fluidity. Mm. The possibility that anyone might live on a continuum uh, between lots of different possibilities. Um, that a woman might love a man at some points in her life, might love women at other points in her life, and um, that there are different kinds of love and different expressions of that love, and that those things can, um, that it's okay not to decide in a way, that it's okay not to fix yourself um, at a particular um, mode of desire. Mm, or a mode of being. Yeah. So love exists on a continuum. It's mm -hmm. not just one thing or another thing. There are many possibilities. And I think that's what she offers to us. Um, a grasping towards something. She hasn't got all the answers. And that's one of the other reasons I'm quite fond of her. Um, she's not dogmatic. She doesn't mm -hmm. tell you that you've got to be this way rather than that. Yes, I agree. And I think it's it's that notion of spectrum, isn't it, rather than binary opposition. Um, 
also the the way that sexual orientation gets divorced from gender identity potentially you know everything's just you know thrown up into the air and left there rather than having to settle into certain kind of preordained positions I think she was very ahead of her time um now I know you've worked on Oscar Wilde as well Ruth um you've got a distinguished publication record in relation to Wilde and and this is an invidious question but how would you compare the legacy of Oscar Wilde with the legacy of Virginia Woolf? Yeah it's a really interesting question because in some ways um, when you turn to the lives rather than the work in both cases I would say please don't learn from their lives. Mm. Um, In the case of Wilde uh, he effectively destroyed himself by Uh, allowing himself to get caught up in a homosexual scandal which then led to imprisonment and uh, destitution actually. Uh, It's something he never recovered from and it's a terrible, terrible story and Wolfe's personal story isn't great either. Um, She Mm -hmm. suffered all her life from uh, episodes of severe mental illness Um, And in 1941, feeling that she might go mad again, uh, she killed herself by drowning herself in a local river. So this isn't a happy story in that sense. But if I can take the lives as one thing and the books as another, I think both of them found ways to speak when you weren't really allowed to. At his trials, Oscar Wilde quoted a poem by Lord Alfred Douglas called Two Loves. And it's the origin of that sentence, that's that phrase, the love that dare not speak its name. Uh, male right. homosexuality, but actually female homosexuality couldn't speak either. In that very hostile environment, they both found ways to say what they felt and to say it in such a way that they weren't prosecuted for their books. They were prosecuted or persecuted perhaps in Wilde's case uh, for other things, but not for the books themselves. Mm. Um, and that gave whole generations of, um, of lesbian and gay young people models to turn to because the environment didn't become less hostile for most of the 20th century. It took a long time for lesbian and gay men to be accepted um, in mainstream society. It wasn't an easy road to hoe. So how do you find uh, a model? How do you how do you know how to be? We all have to model ourselves on someone and the models that Wolf and Wilde give us, they help a bit. They're not happy answer, but they help a bit. Yeah. Okay. well, that's um, a great place to finish, I think. And Ruth, thank you for um, taking part in this conversation in honour of LGBTQ plus History Month. Um, Do look out for the next in the Leeds Beckett podcast series. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Today, Leeds Beckett Research Community is delivering innovative, multidisciplinary research, helping to address some of the most pressing challenges we face today. Across a range of disciplines, our researchers are striving to improve quality of life, equality and the environment around us. We are dedicated to making a difference and our research pages showcase the real-world impact taking place at the university. You can find out more at leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash transform. 
And if you've enjoyed hearing about the research at Leeds Beckett University, subscribe to our channel and listen out for more of our Beckett Talks research podcasts. Thank you.